Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Cloud-Based Mayhem. I'm recording this uh, back at the end of May, but when you get this episode, it's going to be very close to the start of the Red Bull XL. So I hope you'll all uh, join in and watch this insane, wild, crazy, absurd event as we race across the sky and the ground in the Alps from Salzburg to Monaco. You can find all that out, of course, on RedBullXAlps.com and, of course, all over the social media. So uh, follow along. You can follow my Instagram account, Gavin McClurg, or you can follow my Facebook page, uh, Gavin N. McClurg. Love to have you join me there. We'll be doing daily uh, blog feeds and video feeds and pictures and, yeah, getting pretty excited. Been training a long time for this one and stoked to have your support Got a great show for you today. This one's, uh, we stepped outside of our usual path this time and sat down with Caroline Paul. Some of you may have seen her TED Talk, uh, which was how we connected. She gave a great talk a little bit ago on TED. Uh, I think it's been viewed by over a million people, all about bravery and especially with women. Uh, Caroline is kind of the adventurer's adventure, I guess you would call her. She is the author of four books, including the bestseller, uh, New York Times bestseller, Gutsy Girl, which I just finished reading. It's fabulous. Um, she was one of the first firefighters in the country as she worked for the San Francisco Fire Department for 13 years. She's done sea kayak expeditions. She tried to beat the Guinness World Record for crawling when she was a kid. Uh, she built a boat out of milk cartons when she was a kid and talked a couple of her friends and brother into going down the river, which didn't work all that well. But uh, she has a penchant for adventure, and one of those adventures she got into was paragliding. And so when I heard her talk, give her a TED Talk and talk about paragliding, I thought, wow, we got to get this gal on the show and, and talk about risk and fear and strategies for developing bravery in people and especially women. So I think you're going to really enjoy this. Uh, a couple of things of housekeeping before we get into it. Uh, as you know, we had a little contest in April and May. Uh, to whoever gave the best review on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or however you get this podcast uh, that I would give away a Blue Fly Vario and my DeLorme unit that I used when I went across Alaska got so many awesome reviews it was really actually very hard for me to pick uh, winners but they're, they're just terrific. People wrote poems and uh, just so I, I'm really grateful and really thankful for everything you did. Uh, we're going to actually do some more giveaways just so I can pick more people in the future. So if you don't get the shout out for these two wins, don't worry. Uh, you, you're still in the hunt for some good stuff. We've actually just gotten delivery on our Cloud-Based Mayhem t-shirts and hats. So I encourage if you uh, want to support the show, if you go over to patreon.com forward slash Cloud-Based Mayhem, if you contribute at 10 bucks a show, uh, you'll get uh, one of uh, a brand new recap that Annika Hurden made. They're beautiful and they've got our logo on the front. They're really, really cool. I'll have uh, some pictures of those up on Cloud-Based Mayhem and, and on the Patreon page. And if you want to contribute to 20 bucks a show, you'll get a t-shirt among a bunch of whole other rewards. So uh, check that out. Some pretty fun stuff. But anyway, so the winners of the giveaways. Uh, first, we've got Chris Palmer. He wrote, Hey pilots, if you dare call yourself a pilot, having never listened to the Cloud-Based Mayhem podcast hosted by Gavin McClurg, whether you're an old salty or a new berry pie, you need this podcast. The Cloud-Based Mayhem podcast will bring you the best aspects of paragliding all from one easy-to-access digital launch pad. You'll hear heart-wrenching stories of pilots who have left everything, and sometimes vice versa, to pursue the ultimate joy ride, as well as gobs and gobs of precious paraglider lessons hard-earned by seasoned pilots who know what they speak. You'll discover secrets of successful dis decision-making, be inspired to explore new places to fly, Increase your awareness of weather workings and sometimes just be entertained by the likes of some of the most passionate, real, and intelligent people in the paragliding world. Hell, in the whole world. I consider the Mayhem Podcast one of the easiest way to augment my flying other than, well, flying. Live it, learn it, love it. You can't go wrong plugging yourself into the condensed wisdom of the luminaries of the sport. Worth a buck an episode if it gets you one flight of an extra hour or two. Yeah, but it saves your life. You tell me. So pretty cool. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it. You've got uh, Blue Fly Vario on your way. And the other one, Thomas Fay, you're getting my DeLorme. Uh, Thomas says, uh, <clears throat> watch out. If you're struggling with your paragliding addiction and don't want to make it worse, stay away from this podcast. If you already accepted that, there is no cure. Go ahead and suck it all up like sponge. 
It will literally get you high, probably up to cloud base. Thank you, Gavin, for providing us with this incredible podcast. It helps me becoming a better pilot, and I hope you keep on producing for many years. At least give me time to become a better paragliding legend for you to interview. So, very cool. Uh, Thomas, thanks so much. The rest of you, thanks so much. I really appreciate that. So without further ado, please enjoy this uh, most excellent conversation with Caroline Paul. Caroline, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. And uh, I am really excited to talk to you. Oh, I'm excited to talk to you. I'm such a fan, Gavin. I'm really a fan. (laughs) <laughs> and I've been a fan for a long time. So, <laughs> oh, oh my goodness! So, uh, I want maybe a good place to start this off uh, is a story. So, I, I right out of college, I was uh, totally broke, as most people out of college are. I was living in Seattle, and I was really into rock climbing. And so, I uh, volunteered at my gym so I could get a free membership uh, once every couple weeks. And to teach climbing and the Seattle boys and girls club would come down. So these were, these were five and six year olds, uh, boys and girls, and I would teach them how to climb. And so we'd spend the afternoon in the gym and every time it was always the exact same thing. I'd have six or eight little kids just tugging on my pants and so excited to get on the wall and everybody wanted to be first. And you'd put little Johnny on the rope and, uh, and just rally to the top stoked, no fear. Didn't think about how high he was everything was totally fine. And then the next kid would, would get on the rope and be totally excited and two feet off the deck would just lose it. Completely scared and want to be lowered down right away, often in tears. And I was just blown away by the differences at that age. And it made me think a lot about then and still does. I've been thinking about this a lot lately for different reasons, but this whole nature versus nurture thing. And I, I know you have some, uh, some opinions on this. And so I just thought we'd start with that. Great. Yeah. I mean, I, um, well, I'm an identical twin. So as you said, so it's the nature versus nurture thing is pretty interesting because I do feel like genetically very similar to my identical twin. I, I feel very similar and I am, I'm like genetically a clone, uh, but we also express in different ways. So I guess uh, I just a question for you. Was that person that often cried? Was it a girl or a boy? You know, no, I don't recall. This was quite a while ago, but I don't recall that that made a difference. The big difference was, and I've heard you talk about this, is that the girls would always let the boys go first. Mm. And I and I know you talked about that, you know, in your TED talk, you talked about, you know, the playground phenomenon that we let the boys go crazy and we warn the girls, be careful. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I've, I've been really interested in the difference, uh, the d- different ways that men and women react to uh, fear or to risky situations. And because I'm somebody who loves adventure and have, you know, I learned to fly planes when I was started when I was 19. And I um, had already done like weird things like build that milk carton raft. And I had already I had become a whitewater rafting guide. And one thing I noticed like specifically with like whitewater rafting is that on the easy rivers, it was pretty much 50, 50 women to men. But Mm. as the rivers got harder, uh, the women seemed to drop out and there were only a few that could handle those rivers or that would do those rivers. And it was mostly men on the big class five rivers. Now I know some of those women who could handle those class five rivers and they were excellent rafters and not necessarily huge people. And so I knew that it wasn't, you know, strength that was holding women back. Like, what is it? Why? And I've, that's sort of been a question that's fascinated me pretty much for a long time and why I wrote the gutsy girl. And as I began to look into it, it became pretty clear to me that we nurture girls to be fearful and we do it starting at a very young age. And that study that you talk about where was one in which kids on a playground were watched around a playground fire pole, which is ironic because I was a firefighter for many years. And they saw that moms and dads were much more likely to warn their girls about that fire pole. And if the girl still wanted to use the fire pole, they were really likely to assist her. And they saw that 
parents around their boys sort of push them to use the fire pole. And often they would guide them on how to use it on their own. So uh, this message is clear, I think, that we're telling girls at a very young age that they're not very capable and that um, they don't need to use their decision-making skills. And if you are going to do something, you're probably going to need some help. So it starts early. And I think we, we, we believe that. And as we get older and we become teenagers, we stop going outside our comfort zone, whereas boys are embracing going outside their comfort zone. And then if you're in the outdoors field, well, you'll start to see that it's the men who are doing the much radder stuff. And there's really no physical reason. Like Gavin, I became super interested in wingsuiting recently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm really glad that wingsuiting wasn't available when I was younger. I'm older than you. I'm 54. So I started flying when I was 18, and then I started paragliding almost as soon as it came to the United States. I mean, the way I remember is the, it was the 80s, right? Yeah, that early. Yeah, it was early. Like my first wing was basically a square. It was. <laughs> it, was I would, a, it wasn't a wing. It was a parachute. <laughs> it was. It was like a parachute, and they were like, "No, really." We didn't get this from the military. <laughs> it was, I would be landing short of the LZ all the freaking time and not being able to figure it out. Anyway, the wingsuiting is really interesting to me because that is not a sport that demands physical s- strength, which is, I think, pre- pretty much the one area where men can be better than women, possibly. Uh, and yet there, I'd never heard of a female wingsuiter. And then recently I began to look it up and lo and behold, there are I know, but we just don't talk about them. Mm. Either that or they don't talk about themselves. But also we don't talk about them because we don't have a mythology in our culture where women are held up as heroes like that or as Mm. risk takers. So what what was different in your own family? Because clearly, you know, you and your sister are serious go-getters. And, you know, in your talk, you're you're quite humble and say, you know, you you didn't have skills and so you were looking for something to 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 crack the guinness book of world records uh, by by crawling wait a minute i can crawl this is something i could do but you know just to have that mindset took a lot of bravery so what what was what was different about how you know you and your sister were raised versus what you're seeing in the world well i do think there are two reasons well first of all my sister is not a risk taker in the same way i am so Hmm. Whether that's uh, nature or nurture, I can't really explain. It, but she is—we, she is a risk taker. Nevertheless, she just doesn't express it in the outdoors like I do. She's an incredible athlete, though. I mean, she's she does eleven mile swims. She's both of us learned to be very dogged at a very young age, partly because we were identical twins and we competed against each other. We we were sort of. The, really, the only person I wanted to impress was my identical twin sister. And I think I can say that that's probably the same for her. And so I think we developed this, this doggedness. And I don't want to sound coy here, but I'm really not that skilled at stuff. And I, I'm not trying to say that so you go, oh, no, Caroline, you are. Because I'm, I'm really not. I'm a kind of a jack of all trades. I like experiencing things. And I think I got that from my mom. And she... I've talked about this before is that she grew up, she's British and she grew up with a mom who was very fearful and didn't want her two daughters, my mom and, and my aunt to do anything physical really, you know, told them they get hurt and they just never, they didn't do anything outside and they ought, they didn't do that kind of any rough and tumble play. So when my mom and then my mom at 21 went on a ski trip and it was a revelation because she didn't get hurt. She didn't die. And she had so much fun and she realized everything that she was missing. And she didn't tell me this till quite recently um, because she's always said to me, I don't really understand why you are so, uh, she uses the word brave and, but you know, why you are, uh, well, why you are so brave because it didn't come from me. So what, but what did come from her is this, she wanted us to experience a lot of things and have fun and go outside because her mom had not let her do those things. And so she wasn't trying to make my twin sister and my little brother and I brave. 
she was just trying to give us experiences and fun. And so at a very young age, we sledded, we skated, we bicycled, um, we skied, even though we hated it. We hated skiing because there was all that stuff you had to put on and it was just this drag. But my mom was like, no, when you're a little older, you can make the decision not to do this. But for now, we're teaching, you know, we're, you have to play the flute and the guitar and, you know, all those hmm. things, you know, you can then drop. But they wanted us to, it included things like going to church, that she just wanted us to experience a lot of things and then make our choices when we were older. Hmm. I, I want to circle back to your, your thoughts on strength because, you know, paragliding or in wingsuiting, paragliding is a perfect example of this. You know, I mean, these days there is definitely, I got called out about this in a few episodes back with Isabella Messenger, fantastic pilot, that, you know, their size matters really in that you can fly a bigger wing and bigger, bigger wings are faster. So for competition, you know, for racing, you know, there, there is an advantage to just being a, a bigger person, but there's, there's no other advantage at all between male and female, but it's got to be, you know, since you started flying, you know, there's, there has always been a really, really awesome female pilot in the world. You know, they're, they're few and far between, but there's, you know, every year there's somebody that steps into that role for a few years and they typically go away right now. Seiko in France is just, you know, she's every bit as good as the best guys, but you know, it's 101. Yeah. And, and, and that's, I think that fascinates all of us. You know, we, we, why is that? You've answered it a little bit, but like you said, it's, uh, is it just the perceived risk? Is it just the fear? Is it, what is it? Well, I do think, I mean, again, I think we're acculturated at a really young age to, to be fearful. And I think that when our parents caution us, they're thinking about all the things that they think terrible can happen to girls in this world. So they think they're protecting us, but what they're, I think what they're really doing is not uh, giving us all the lessons that taking risks gives you. And that means, you know, decision-making and leadership and confidence, which is a big one, teamwork, working with other people. So it's not just that we're taught to be fearful. It's all these other things, all these other great lessons that come along with pushing outside your comfort zone as a kid that we don't get. And I think that, and confidence is a big one. So I really believe that we don't yet have a, again, maybe the mythology is the word or a, a culture that celebrates women at doing these sort of heroic, adventurous things like superhero stuff, which is kind of what flying is after all. And so when you don't have that, you don't have people looking to do that. It's, 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 all, it's like a weird, like you're a sailor. So, you know, if you're just off course by a little bit in the beginning, it's not a big deal. But if you keep staying on course like that, you're missing where you were going to go by thousands of miles. And I think it's the same thing. We start so young with these messages. And by the time, you know, we're in our 20s, things like, and or I don't know how young are, how young are people flying now? I mean, we, I started, well, it was a little different because it hadn't really come. But, you know, I started doing outdoor stuff in my teens you know, if you're, if you're off course on that, you're just never going to experience it. Yeah. You know, in, in Europe now, I think it, it's, it's quite a bit more strict in some, and it depends on the country, but most countries, you know, you can't really fly or get a license until you're 15. So, mm-hmm. you know, pretty young and the sport is, is always struggling with attracting younger people to the, I mean, it tends to be an older person's sport. Um, the acro, the acrobatic side of things is, is radically changing. You know, those, those folks tend to be pretty young. Uh, it's just so fast switch and you've got to be on it. And, they're getting so good so fast. It's just a young young person's game, and there's some there's some pretty phenomenal female acro pilots right now. So which is really right, and that I have never heard of. So yeah. here's the other thing: is I just don't think we taught there aren't enough role models mm. uh, for for girls and young women to see that these are things that they can and should do, and that they that you really get cred for, and that there are really um, I think boys learn at a young age that. Not only do they get cred for it, but it's really satisfying to have adventures. And we don't, we don't get that. We don't have a role model to follow that way. And so now what you'll be seeing is all these 
because I've been contacted by these organizations since the book came out, there's all these outdoor groups for women who are going in the outdoors for the first time, but they're thirsty for it. But they just have not been given sort of the opportunity or the role models before this. And so in your experience, is this really changing? You know, because I, I think of my own community here and they're just, uh, you know, I think there's probably more men, but there's, God, there's some women getting after it. I mean, it is just so inspiring. There are some real badasses here, oh, there whether are that's in mountaineering, rivers, women. or, you know, they're just amazing. Yes. Oh my God. I mean, yes. And I knew them when I was a kid and I knew some of the best. I was a whitewater rafter. I was part of an all women's whitewater team. And it happened to be at this golden age, just when uh, the n- the new raft had been invented called the self-bailer. Mm-hmm. Do you know rafting at all? Yeah, um, totally. Like, yeah, I was a kayaker for a long time. So, yeah. Oh, well, there you go. So, you know, that was just, suddenly all these rivers were opened up to us because these rafts wouldn't fill up with water and stay filled up with water and become un, un, you know, un, uncontrollable. So we could do big rivers. That had, then there were a lot of unexplored rivers. And I was with a team of um, you know, Nancy Wiley, Kelly Califatich, Beth Rippins. These were top, top whitewater people, hands down, all, uh, you know, along with the men. Yeah, you know, Lars Holbeck, who I adore. Yeah, yeah uh, of course. Was was awesome, but his girlfriend was Beth Rippins and they did expeditions together. Hmm. So, so I want to talk about your firefighting briefly, but before we do, before I lose the thread on the risk, you, you, you said something in one of your talks about putting fear in the right place. We, I just did a podcast with kind of air Jedi and North America guy named Bill Belcourt. And he, he had some good thoughts about fear where it's just, you know, we're participating in a sport that is scary, just flat out, you know, and it's, it, and it can get very scary sometimes unplanned, of course. And, uh, you know, but you have to, you have to box that fear up and put it in the appropriate place. You got to kick it away. How do you do that? Well, can I just ask you a question that I've been wanting to ask you? Um, (laughs) just how bad were those thermals in your, in both of your long, uh, you're in the Canadian Rockies yeah. and yeah. when you were crossing over Denali, like what the Alaskan range, can you just give me a sense? Because you did say you were scared, but I was like, holy, cause I've been in some bad thermals. I mean, I've been in thermals, but I know they're nothing like what you were in and so bad that I can't key my mic or you actually got might even have, <laughs> I'm talking about in my experiment, I fly now, I don't fly paragliders anymore. I fly, um, Hang gliders with motors, you know, yeah, weight shift right. strikes. And I yeah. and I can't key my mic. That the, but I was thinking, holy cow, that must be nuts. Give me a sense of what it was like. So the that scene in the Rockies Traverse where I swear profusely, um, that was actually a really scary climb. At that point, I had it pretty under control, so I was able to talk to the camera. Uh, but I had, I had kind of dug out of this canyon. It was really windy that day. Will and I were both getting pretty spanked. And uh, I sometimes, when I'm in the air, I need to talk like that. I need to just, uh, I either need to, I do one of two things typically when things get really hairy is I do these kind of four second in and out breathing until mm-hmm. I just calm down. And the other one is just like, yeah, this is awesome. You know, like I got this, you know, kind of like talking back to the thermal. I do that a lot, you know, sailing when I'm offshore, if things are just really bad, that's just my way of, yeah. A a lot of it was learned when I was sailing because I had clients on board, you know, that there's nothing worse than being in a storm with clients and showing, you don't want to show them that you're afraid because they're already afraid and they, you know, you feel very small in a big sea. And so you know, you want to really project, um, confidence. And so I think, I think projections half of it is just faking yourself out, uh, that, but did you have any big wing collapses? I didn't see any. And I was like, we, we did in in the Rockies a bit. Um, you know, I don't want this to sound the wrong way or not humble, but I, you know, I don't, I don't get many collapses anymore. You know, when, Mm. when you start getting better and better, you, you're, you get pretty good at keeping your wing open. 
But to, to fully answer your question, nothing is as rough as where I fly on a pretty regular basis in Sun Valley. This place is as mm. rough as it gets. And so, you know, we deal with conditions here that are much windier and much, uh, much more, much stronger. So really violent, uh, uh, thermals that were, you know, both in the Rockies and in Alaska were nothing. And actually the flying in Alaska, you know, it was more just the bigness that was kind of, made it feel pretty sketchy, but most of the flying was actually pretty tame. You know, I would, I would take groups up there and do, and do bivy trips, uh, like guided bivy trips, not the whole section through Denali, of course, but after that, after the road that goes through the park, most of that's pretty manageable. You know, the, the takeoffs are manageable. You can land anywhere on the tundra. It's not, it wasn't that far to a road that, that kind of after Dave left that section of the film, but, uh, you know, Stuffing it into that cloud, that that was nerve wracking. Now I did that totally on purpose. You know, I I could have not gone in that cloud very easily. You just dial down really fast. Um, it, you know, it was cloud sucking pretty hard, but that was more just stormy, and I needed the height to make the next jump over over the uh, what river was I trying to get over there? I was trying to get over one of the major drainage drainages coming off the north slope of Denali there. And uh, so I, you know, the cloud base wasn't that high that day. It was only like 11,000. And so I just, I went in the cloud on purpose, but I didn't think it was going to be that long. <laughs> How long so, were you in that cloud? Because I don't understand. I would have just gone hand. Yeah, what? it was over 20 minutes. Um, but but then, I mean, how, what do you, did you go hands off and just be like, let's just let this thing fly? Because you didn't know if you were just going to go on a turn. And- oh, I was all over the place. That's the problem. You know, you know this from flying planes, bush planes, I'm sure. Uh, you know, it's, this is what kills people in Alaska, bush pilots yeah. all the time is going into white because you get, you're so disoriented and you're convinced at times that your wing is below your feet and you can't fly straight. And so the trick there uh, for me, which was quite comical actually, is uh, so just very, very light pressure in the brakes in case, you know, try to just feel if something was going to take a big surge on me. Um, but that, but half the time, so I, I kept trying to pull up my compass on my inReach device and I'd had it set for power saving mode. And so after 10 seconds, it would go blank. And so mm-hmm. the, my compass wouldn't work. You know, usually we have a manual compass on our deck, but we were trying to be so light. We were, you know, we weren't, we didn't even have it. And then, so I would pull up Gaia maps, <laughs> you know, it's like an app on your phone. And, but that thing reacts quite slowly. So, and I just had that up really not even so much for direction. It's just to make sure I wasn't going to run into something just so I had terrain clearance. And but half of the 20 minutes oh I was flying goodness. the wrong way. I mean, I'm not so telling your mom any of this. I know. Well, she, she has sat in the premiere of both those films right next oh to me and goodness. I get the biggest bruise on my knees from her just. <laughs> no, I was watching the whole thing while I was working out a lot of the times. And I was like, oh. I have to go work out. And it's because I got to watch your movies while I was on my whatever dumb machine. And I was, yeah, people around must have thought I was crazy because I kept going, oh no, oh no, 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 he's not going to do that. No, oh. We, we have had those reactions. <laughs> anyway, okay, well, let's see. Fear. You know, I, I'm, I've said this. I actually am not fearless by any means. And may, I think most, maybe a lot of us adventurers aren't. We, no, and that's so, why no. we take risks because we're trying to prove to ourselves that we, you know, that we are brave because we value bravery and yet we're a little bit more fearful than we think. And like I, like I said, I was a, I was a really shy and fearful kid and it was not a good feeling to feel that vulnerable and scared of, you know, big kids and school and all that. And so I have a, I, I like facing fear and I have a methodology that I use, which is I, first of all, I recognize it and I hold it up and I really assess like, is this really relevant? Because fear is often first of all, too late. So I, I was, um, there's a story in the in gutsy girl when I was a firefighter about, uh, a f- uh, my crew and I were crawling down a hallway with the hose trying to find the fire and we just, and it was really dark and smoky and a little odd, uh, and r- quiet. And then all of a sudden there was a huge explosion and we were blown out of the hallway and 
when I, we were kind of, and then now we were in the garage and getting ourselves sorted. And I felt this fear that I honestly had never felt before. And I wasn't used to it. That kind of overwhelming, like no freaking way am I going back in that hallway. That was very unlike me. In fact, that fear was a little too late because what had happened was that we had experienced a flashover, not where we were, because if we had, we would have died, but probably somewhere in that building in a room off. And it had just, and a flashover is when everything's so hot that the air just explodes. And we had been blown out of that hallway. But now the hallway was safer because the heat that had been building up had now exploded. So in fact, the hallway was safer. So this idea that I was so terrified to go back in the hall actually didn't make sense. And I know people look at me like, you're just, what are you talking about? But you get what I'm saying, right, Mm -hmm. Gavin? Mm -hmm. I mean, fear is there for a reason, but it's often not quite calibrating everything. And so it's important to look at it. It's definitely something to look at. It's a flag. What happened? Oh, that was bad. There was a big explosion. But really, now you take the time to to assess like how relevant it is. Now, that's an extreme situation. Most of the time, I'm feeling fear, and I'm feeling a lot of other things, too, like when I paraglide or when I fly now my trike. Uh, and that is you know, excitement, anticipation, curiosity, and, and some fear because, you know, you're still flying. It still feels like magic. I don't know about you, but when mm. I fly, I'm like, it's, How did magic. It it's like magic. Suddenly I'm on the ground. Now I'm loosed from the world. Magic it feels right. like magic. Yeah. I know what the physics is, but it feels like magic. And so I feel fear and I then look at all the other things I'm feeling and I put them in line. Like what's the why am I here? Well, I'm here to have a big adventure and have fun. And am I? Yep. Okay, good. Push fear a little farther back. You know, uh, I'm with my friends and, um, I'm feeling exhilarated. Is that cool? Oh yeah, that's cool. Fear goes a little farther back. And so I really think that if people look at their fear and also all the other emotions they're feeling and then line them up in this, that they'll do way more things outside their comfort zone than they do now. Because fear is not what we women have often been taught, which is a reason to stop. Fear is simply a reason to look, Hmm. but not to stop. Uh, And I think that we've been taught from a really young age that fear is a reason to stop. And then someone else will do whatever it is for us. Often uh, a parent when we're a kid, and then as we grow older, it's going to be a boy or a man. And that's, first of all, a lot of stress on you guys. So, because you guys have been taught to step up no matter what. We need to learn some of that. One of the questions I get a lot of is why? Why risk so much? Why do this? Uh, you know, for, for me, it's, it's, you know, when you do a little bit, you talk about micro bravery. I love that. But when you do a little bit and it works, you want to do more. How do we balance uh, that that potential of going too far? You know, when I was young, I was totally a risk taker. I mean, that was what I was. And um, and I hung out with Lars quite a bit, Lars Holbeck, who probably a lot of your listeners know. He's passed away now, which is just a, a tragic, tragic loss. But he was an amazing kayaker, and he actually got into paragliding a little bit after me. So we would go on paragliding expeditions together. And um, but L- Lars was the first. It was the first time I ever realized because he actually said that he said I'm not a risk taker, and I was shocked because he's such an adventurer. But there's a difference, mm-hmm. and now I'm not a risk taker. I like to experience things. I'm very happy to push my comfort zone. But I'm not really there just for the pure adrenaline. I'm there for the experience, which includes adrenaline. But and maybe it's because I'm older now and I've had, you know, I've had my fair of crashes and injuries and close calls. But I think there's a I think it's a mistake to think of adventurers just as risk takers. I think we are experiencers Uh, on a physical and emotional and mental level. And that's that whole package is what we're after. 
let's go to, oh, I want to ask you about your crash. Uh, was, was that in a plane or a trike? That was in a trike. That okay. was in my trike. Yeah. So, so humiliating. Well, you, you know, it's, it, I don't use this podcast to scare people, but we do, you know, it, it, it's paragliding and hang gliding and wingsuit and base jump and flying and there are accidents. And I think there's always something to be learned from them. For those who don't know the story, because you've, you've talked about this, you talked about this in your book too, but what was the takeaway and how did you come back from it? I think that's always really interesting. You know, how do you, how do you recover and get back on the slack line? Yeah, no, no, that is interesting. So I uh, fly at weight shift trikes, which is basically hang gliders with sort of go-karts underneath them is the way I explain them. I fly them out of an airport uh, here in Petaluma, I hangar it, and uh, I had been having problems with my wing. It was a new wing, and it wasn't, it just didn't fly well. And I'm not that, I'm, I'm not a gearhead. I've never liked gear. I've never been somebody who's interested in gear, and a lot of my fellow adventurers are, especially pilots. But I don't – so when I got into weight shift trikes, now I'm dealing with a motor. It's like, ah. But we – there was really – it's at least at the time, it was an unregulated sport, so you had to really deal with your own equipment. And my wing wasn't flying well, and I pretty much ignored it, I have to say, and I – this is the lesson that I learned is that you do not ignore these kind of details because, uh, I thought I was a good enough pilot just to overlook it. And one day I flew in very, very rough air and I knew that this was, my plane was just not responding well. And I was kind of freaked out and I turned around, went back to the airport came into land and I stall and the wing stalled. I stalled the wing clearly somehow and, uh, and just augured in and pretty much shattered my left ankle and had a head injury, but not a head. I had a head wound. I was oriented like I was very lucky. And it took me almost a year to recover. The takeaway for me is you cannot let those things go like I did because that's what's going to happen. Your wing will stall because it's not, it's basically not trimmed right. My wing wasn't tuned right. And I, I was sort of was because I'm not good at gear or not good at fixing things. I don't consider myself handy. I ignored it. Thus in the gutsy girl, there is actually an activity um, where girls go pick up tools. I <laughs> get your learn tools and learn confidence around tools. And it's not that I, you know, as a firefighter, I certainly use, know how to use a chainsaw and throw a ladder, but it's just not something that I'm that interested in. So that's the moral of the story. And my girlfriend, Wendy, she, she, she actually made me promise that I wouldn't let little things go by. And that includes like my car. Like if there's a light out of my car, you deal with it right away. You know, if some, I, tr I try to really take it to heart now because you know, what happened was an accident that could have killed me. The way I got back from it is I, I love flying. I've been flying since I was very, very young. And I thought, but so I, so I, after a year, I wanted to fly again. And I asked my instructor to help me and we got back in and started some basics. And I was super, super bitchy. <laughs> That's how I express fear is that I get really sort of irritated and bitchy. And I realized, oh, you have PTSD and you're, you know, this is not fun. Flying is not fun for you. And I thought, well, if it's not going to be fun, I'm not going to do it. But I love flying and I've flown, you know, different flying machines. And was I going to give this up? And so I decided I would go get hypnotized. Mm. And wow. Okay, cool. Yeah. I mean, you know, when I can't figure something out, I try to go way out of the box because the bo being in the box, it wasn't helping. I mean, I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. I was taking my little lessons and I was getting, you know, reacquainted with flying. I mean, I've been flying for years. I was doing what I was supposed to do and it wasn't, I, emotionally, I was just not having fun. And so I went and got hypnotized and now I'm a pilot again. I fly every week. I am not the pilot I was. Don't love rough air. Uh, flying 
love early, early morning, uh, calm situation. And, but I'm flying and I don't care. You know, I'm, I don't have anything to prove. I'm just so glad that I'm still flying. Hmm. Do you, when, when you write about in the book where you're actually, maybe this wasn't in the book, but the, you write about what, you know, when you first learned to paraglide, you, you know, you're, you're, you're where you learned your, your ridge soaring and, and that's what that's paragliding. And then, a uh, friend of yours goes, nah, we got to go learn. We got to go thermal. We got to go large, you know, large. large. We got to go, we got to go cross country. And, uh, you guys go to a place and you launch off and you, you're, 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 you're failing. And then whoop, wait a minute. Now it's working. And then you end up in a cloud that <laughs> you, you make the ultimate rookie mistake. Um, and, uh, ultimate man, ultimate. I'm really good at those rookie mistakes. Yeah. I have to say, well, didn't, you know, this is what I loved in your film. What you said is like, there's, there's paragliders that have landed in trees and there's paragliders who will land in trees. <laughs> yeah, there's those that have and those that will. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's like the, it's like the, uh, you know, a, a very good friend of mine is a bush pilot in Alaska. He's been, well, he was support for us on that Alaska trip. He was the, he was the, uh, super cub pilot in the film. And, uh, he, you know, he, he says the same thing. He hasn't had a crash, knock on wood, but up in Alaska, it's, there's those that have and those that will, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so was that was that sufficiently scary that that was it for you for thermal flying, or was that just an experience you wrote about in the book and you kept going from there? So it was just it was just you know dumb, and I was basically uh, Lars had instructed me on how to thermal fly, and he's so good at everything, yeah, that uh, you know I I can actually say that he probably didn't give me like every single thing I should have done, but he, he's a great, he's a great teacher, I have to say, but he's also, I think because everything's, he's just so good at stuff. Sometimes he forgets a little thing. So anyway, <laughs> I think, I don't think he told me not to go underneath a dark cloud. I just don't think he told me that. <laughs> and so when I hit a thermal, that was a pretty bomber thermal, I was psyched. And, uh, so was my Vario. And <laughs> Uh, then all of a sudden I was misting over and my Vario was screaming at me and I was like, Whoa. And I knew, I knew the stories. I mean, I know, I knew all the stories because I, um, because we paragliders do. And I got myself out of it. <laughs> I got myself out of it. I don't know if I, you know how I did. Did I say how I did? I guess I, can't I know remember. what I should have done. You know, back then, I don't know much about wings now, but back I, I want to say you like stalled it or something. I did it, the glider. See, okay. I knew I should have. That's what I should have done. Don't you think? Yeah. I mean, I know. No, I should, no, I you should have you you just spiraled down. Uh, you know, no, I, think, I mean, the spiral, the, the spiral dive wasn't okay. Well, okay. Possibly. But I didn't think, I think I had tried that initially, like just at least <laughs> anyway, my thought was I should stall it because I was getting sucked up so fast. And, but at the time, you know, it was uncertain whether your wing would reinflate. They just weren't that good. <laughs> and, uh, in fact, I lent my, I gave my wing that, that I flew at the time to a friend of mine, like, mm, I don't know what it was like eight years ago, seven years ago. And his, he was going to to try paragliding and his instructor looked, I said, this is an awesome wing. And it's super medium. It's just for medium pilots. It's stable. And I gave it to him. And his instructor was like, this thing is a death trap. <laughs> but back then, you know, that was like, it was a good wing. Sure. Anyway, you know, I wasn't just, there was just a sense and it might not reinflate. I didn't. And also the reinflation of back then, you could sometimes drop back into your wing because it was so abrupt. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I just didn't, I should have stalled it and I didn't. And I tried big ears, which is kind of the lame California ridge soaring way to get down. Sure. Not enough. That wouldn't be enough. Nah, it wasn't enough. And so then I spiral dived in big ears. Yeah, that's right. That's what you did. Cool. Which is so you had you, you had some experience. You knew how to do this stuff. This wasn't all just Greek. You weren't getting sucked up in the cloud going, huh, well, let's see. <laughs> oh, no, no. I mean, I, you know, again, like I think with adventure, it's all this 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 line of you want to go outside your comfort zone. And uh so you do need to take risks, but they need to be calculated and you need to have skill. And that's one thing I do talk about in uh in Gutsy Girl, because I think women do think uh, that 
being an adventurer is just all about like balls out risk and danger. And it's just not. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So was that, how, how did paragliding stop and why did it stop? You know, I, in, I fell on my knee in, in a fire and I injured it pretty badly and had many surgeries and finally had to have my knee replaced. And so I decided to switch from, I didn't want to land. Hmm. As a result, my back was starting, you know, firefighting is just hard on, on, on you. I mean, everybody plays hurt as a firefighter in a big city. Hmm. So I thought, you know, I just don't want to push this. Cause if I had any way shattered my femur in some weird paragliding accident, then I would not have anything to hammer my fake knee onto. This is what my doctor told me. So mm. I switched out of paragliding and took up uh, trikes and then, you know, probably, probably crashed. Probably <laughs> eight years later, had an accident. Many years later, had an accident. But, yeah. Caroline, so, I know, I, I know I want to be sensitive of your, of your uh, time pressure here. I know you've got another thing you have to get onto, but before we do in these last minutes, I would love to hear about, you know, so you fought fire for the city of San Francisco. You were one of the first women in the nation, I understand, to uh, be on a big city crew. Um, I'd love to hear you, you fought fire for 13 years uh, for city of San Francisco. I'd love to hear what the impetus was to, to take that on to even get into it because uh you know you talk about the the numbers are wildly against women um and that is a profession where strength matters so you know what what uh, i have a lot of firefighter friends and you know Mm -hmm. they're they're big dudes um i'd love to hear that story I actually knew no female firefighters growing up, and it wasn't something I ever wanted to do. I graduated from Stanford. I was supposed to be, you know, a businesswoman with a briefcase, but the idea of an office job just always terrified me. And so I was actually on course to to be a journalist or sort of a documentary filmmaker. I was trying to follow like Dave Brashears, like he was an amazing outdoors person, and he made his money by being a filmmaker. Like I wanted to sort of make sure that my life included adventure and that somehow I could get paid for that. But firefighting never came up as an option. It just, it it wasn't, I had no role models for that. But so at the time, uh, 1988, I was working at a radio station and because I was, you know, pursuing this sort of journalism thing, documentary filmmaking, et cetera. And uh, all these stories started coming over my desk about uh, the racist, sexist San Francisco fire department. There were lots of issues at the time. Um, It was a very insulated fire department and they were just letting in women. So I wasn't the first. I mean, there were, there was five women in and, and I thought, oh, this would be an interesting undercover story. People, by the way, who want to be a firefighter desperately, as I totally understand, hate me for this because basically I fell into the job of firefighting and it was a job that so suited me. So I went to the testing process thinking I was going to get a story. Whoa, uh, I did not know any of this. This is cool. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, and of course, you know, let's be honest like racism and sexism doesn't show up in a two hour test sure. testing period. Like the, the reason racism and sexism is so insidious is that it, it's not that obvious. A lot of the times, you know, it's a, it's something woven into our culture. So I don't know what the heck I was thinking. I was just a dumb 25 year old and I thought I'd get this undercover story and I didn't, but I went through the whole testing process because I became more and more intrigued. Like, Oh, what is this job? And I got in, like I scored very high because I was just, I'd taken so many tests in my life, not for any other reason. I mean, really it's like winning the lottery to be a firefighter. I was a rower at Stanford. I was, so I was very fit. And as you know, I'd also been on the, um, at the, uh, Lake Placid Olympic training center as a loser. That's right. I forgot about that one. That's, yeah, that's another, <laughs> that's great, that's another great, great story. I was, I mean, I was very, very fit. I still am. I believe in it. And, and, and firefighting is a really tough job. And when I, and I, so I understood, you know, why 
the men were very, very well, they range from being actively hostile to just trepidatious about women coming in. It makes total sense. I mean, first of all, they had no role models themselves for strong athletic women because in 1972, uh, Title IX passed, which gave girls equal access to sports. And so for them, they'd never see, that was my generation. 1972 was when I was in what grade school or something. Mm-hmm. So that was my generation who, who became, started to become athletic and outdoorsy and strong and, and physical and, and learning all those attributes that come along with it, then including bravery. But to these men, a lot of them, they'd never seen women who could do anything like that. So I totally understood when I got in. And by the way, I was the 15th woman because people say I was the first. And there, there had been some women around the nation, but there certainly weren't that many. Uh, I was the 15th woman and there was 1,500 men. So it was still very much, we were Jeez. very much an anomaly and um, under a lot of pressure to perform. And it is a very difficult job physically. And so if you are a woman, you have to be in super good shape. But it's really interesting, and Gavin, you might understand this, that if I was to pick my crew and look around a firehouse, it often wasn't the biggest men who I would pick. I would pick a lot of the smaller men who were smart, who knew their physical limitations, and were smart and very brave. Hmm. And I'm making a generalization here, but you know, it's not just about strength. So there is definitely a place for women in firefighting. I, there's one story where I remember us being, we were on a stairwell waiting for the door to get knocked open by the guy at the top. And we're all lying there in a line and he's hammering at the door with his ax because he's a big guy. Now, I'm strong, but I know what I would have used immediately. I would have used the claw bar on that door because you can't, he was not getting that door open. And I actually had one on me. And usually you don't give up your equipment, but it was getting smokier and smokier. And I was like, damn it, how long are we going to wait here for this guy to open the door? And I yell up, take my claw bar. And he wouldn't do it. But mm. so being a big guy doesn't necessarily mean you're doing the right things or you're a better firefighter by any means. It would have taken me uh, like much less time to get that, that door open if I'd been up there, especially if I'd had somebody who gave the claw bar one whack on the head, then we would have just, that door would have popped open. <laughs> but if you're a big guy, you don't necessarily think that. So you've got to be fit and you have to be strong. And I really understood why people, and I did not resent at all why people had that worry about us, but I was fit and strong. And, but the, here's the thing. And I, and I, I talk about this is that what, what I really realized is that what people, both men and women, not only did they think that women weren't strong enough to be firefighters, they definitely thought we weren't brave enough. And that is something uh, that I think people are, first of all, very wrong about and is the much more important asset that you have to have when you're a firefighter. So when you're, when you're in that kind of environment, you know, 1500 to 15, um, especially, especially early on, I assume things have probably gotten better, uh, from the female perspective. Maybe it's still just all jockey talk and, you know, Trump bus talk kind of stuff, <laughs> but, uh, or, or is it not? I mean, did you find in, in general, like, would you want your daughter to go be a firefighter? Yeah, I mean, I think it's an amazing job. The the job made me such a better person on so many levels. I mean, I didn't, I went in for the adventure and I just came out a better person, more empathetic, more under, with a deep understanding of the many different ways that people live in this country from hoarders, you know, to Mm -hmm. Section 8 housing, uh, to people on the street and just a, a real understanding of people, human resilience. I mean, I'd never seen a dead body before. And the first dead body I saw was a woman who was murdered. I mean, this was a shock for somebody of my socioeconomic background and um, a culture. Mm. It was, you know, I, whether it's, I can't really speak for now because I've been out of the fire department um, for a, a really long time, but I don't have kids, but if I did, I would definitely want them to be firefighters, mm. male and female. Mm. I think it just makes you a better person if you're smart enough to see the job that way. 
And did it take any kind of special resilience to, you know, deal with the probably uh, the heavily testosterone laden laden environment or or are really, you know, the firemen I know are just amazing people or is it just it's just an amazing place to work regardless of your. I mean, I love I'd always been around just more men than women because I had so much in common with, I mean, I liked all the stuff that the adventurous stuff that men liked at when I was growing up. And so the testosterone laden, uh, environment was not intimidating in and of itself. I mean, it's really fun to Mm. watch how Mm. men interact. I mean, that you guys have a lot of fun together there's so much laughing going on. It's really loud. The best jokes in the world. I mean, the one, but the one thing was, of course, is that I wasn't really, um, in not, in, it was a, I was, I was excluded from that and it wasn't on purpose. And I could mm-hmm. see that it was, it's simply because, you know, the genders, we perform very ritualistically mm-hmm. and, and the female ritual, honestly, uh, is to is done very differently than the male ritual. So you guys are brought up in a very hierarchical way. Like you're always one upping each other, and that looks like jokes. And it's it's fun to watch. I love it personally. It can get kind of brutal as a woman. We're like, whoa, is this going to come to blows? I mean, they're really he's fat, he's bald. I slept with your wife. I'm like, really? It's funny, but I just can't imagine saying it because we're not brought up that way. You know, as women, we are brought up to maintain parity in a room. And that's Mm. what we do. And Mm. so imagine in the firehouse when you get those two rituals, those two sort of um, acculturated ways of being in the world together. And it's, it's weird. So it's, if I joked with the men, it would, they would be insulted. You know, it's just different. I mean, I think you can imagine if a if a woman said to you, like, "Hey, you're fat." I mean, I know you're not. In a joking way, you would be it's freaked different. out. If you're, it is. It's different. It's mm. different, and it's so it's hard to cross those bound those those um, etiquette boundaries. And it's the same if you're a person of color. I mean, people are like, "I'm not a racist. I'm not prejudiced." But there's so much exclusion going on because we're sort of a white culture. And you don't see it because the rituals are all in your favor. It's really interesting. I have to say that I, I had so much fun in the firehouse and I've laughed so much. Um, but to say that I was always included, no, mm-hmm. I wasn't. But, but I could understand why. I mean, I understood it. And, you know, as long as no one was, you know, um, overtly harassing me to my face or mean, which, you know, sometimes they were. You know, I was okay with people, but you had to be, you know, respectful to me. And and in general, I got to say, firefighters are fun and super smart and very interesting. Mm. And I'm just so grateful for those years in the firehouse. Just so grateful. Awesome, awesome. Um, Caroline, you you mentioned your partner uh, is Wendy. I'm a, I'm going to make a, a massive jump here and assume that's not a guy. Uh, I would <laughs> love to ask you a, a question that may be kind of tricky to ask, but you know, in my experience with professional sports and just being around sports my whole life, that it is really prevalent for uh, gay women to be very brave and bold. I, I have no statistics to back that up, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, I think that that might be true. Maybe there are more gay women in those arenas. And I think it's because we just, we aren't brought up with a template the way you are if you're straight. And so I think we're more willing to break the boundaries because we've already broken one of the essential ones, you know, just by being born this way. And so I think we just are more open to, um, pushing outside the normal sort of gender roles. I also think that when I was a kid, at least, gender and sexuality were very intertwined. Like we kind of thought they were almost the same thing. And so, uh, and I hear this actually from friends of mine now whose kids are gay, is that like initially their kid grows up is when they're young they, they take on the trappings of the other gender because that's the way they, the only way they know to express this sexuality that isn't in line with the norm. 
So for instance, you know, like a, a one friend of mine was talking about how her daughter just wanted to wear his boys clothes and they even thought she might be transgender, but it was actually, she just didn't have any role models for how to express what looked like a boy thing. And now she's not like that at all. You know, she's now she's a teenager and not like that at all. Like she's, I mean, which is, it would be fine either way, but she's just solidly gay. She's not transgender. She likes being a woman, but it, so I really feel like at the, since, since a lot of this happens at such a young age, like I was talking about the lessons that we're learning, the messages that we're getting, it's possible that, you know, those of us who were gay as kids, we took on much male, much more male trappings because our sexuality seemed to be more male. Now, I don't think I'm male at all, but I feel like that was my, I was more open to learning, valuing things that men valued, like bravery, and not as much the things that women valued, like fear, which I think we, we are taught to value, and kind of use and is very feminine. But now, as we are more sophisticated as a culture, and we see that sexuality and gender are actually distinct things, if this indeed is true, and anecdotally, it did feel true that there were more, um, I didn't actually know that many gay women, frankly, all my close friends happen to be rad straight women, but I totally hear you. And certainly in firefighting, there's a disproportional amount of gay women. There's certainly a ton of straight women, mm. but there's, I'd say there's a disproportional amount given how many are, of us are supposedly in the population. But again, I think that's two things. So we're breaking out. We don't have a template that we have to stick to. So we're just more open to things and able uh, to do things that aren't considered ladylike, basically. Uh, and also this, this idea that, you know, that bravery is the purview of men. And if you're a gay woman is a young kid, you think that that's probably where you're going sort of in this male world, because you like girls. Mm. And that's going to change, I really think, hopefully, I mean, I know a lot of rad straight women, that's for sure. But if that's what we were seeing, I think that's where it comes from. I don't think there's a, you know, a chemical in there that's like, oh, you're gay and you're super adventurous because oh, I, I do not have a, I really honestly, like all my lesbian friends are just totally like, what are you doing going outside and camping? <laughs> <laughs> cool. I, I, Let's I, hand it to the scientists. It's their turn. They got to figure this out. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, Carolyn, I, I know I've, I've burned up your time. Before I let you go, I would love uh, to give you an opportunity to let people know how they can reach you. And also, if you just have any kind of closing statement to the to the female listeners of our show and everybody um, on risk, on adventure, on getting out there and going for it, because I know that's what you're all about. Yeah, I don't, gosh, I bet the female listeners uh, of your show are really kick-ass, which is great. I don't have any, but if you do have listeners, and I hope you do, who aren't like over outdoor adventurers, like paragliders and stuff, I hope that they know that like my message in general is get outside your comfort zone. Don't get outside my comfort zone, because my comfort zone can can look really extreme to people, but please get outside your comfort zone. I mean, that's, that's what I really want to tell people. Hmm. Uh, my website is where my email is. And, and I think all my information, it's carolinepaul.com. Mm, my, and there's all that. My Ted talk link is there and you know, I'm, I'm on uh, Twitter, but not that I'm not that I don't, I'm not really that connected via like basically someone will try to get a hold of me on Facebook and think I hate them because in th three months later, I <laughs> you discover it. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well then I'm like, I, Oh, I did, forgot that little icon up there. Was, yeah. I'm not trying to sound super old. I'm just outside you guys. I'm just outside. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. No, this stuff is, this stuff is totally overwhelming. Well, you were very kind to get right back to me. I will have, uh, the Ted talk and, uh, your, your talks that you've done with Tim Ferriss, you had a kind of a question answer thing that I thought was awesome. And then also a, a regular talk on Tim Ferriss's show. So I'll have all those uh, links up in our show notes. 
Caroline, thank you so much. I have family out in your neck of the woods. So the next time I come through the Petaluma area, I'd love to uh, shout you whatever you'd like to drink and we'll go have some laughs and maybe get up in the sky. But uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. It means a lot to me. Oh, I'm so, I can't tell you. I'm just, I'm really uh, so honored to be talking to you because you are really a kick-ass adventurer. I'm a big admirer, big admirer. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Caroline. Thank you. And uh, until we meet again, and I'll see you at Cloudbase. Great. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that. That was pretty fun to take a diversion from our uh, normal programming and uh, and talk to Caroline about about uh, bravery and courage and developing courage and fear and yeah what a fascinating life she has lived hope you enjoyed that as always all we ask for is a buck a show uh, this is a listener supported podcast I'm not into doing the sponsor thing I hope you appreciate that and uh, so if you've gotten something out of this or one of the previous episodes there's a whole lot of good material there hours and hours and hours to fill up your day driving up to launch and have discussions by um, send us a buck via paypal or even better if you go on patreon.com forward slash cloud-based mayhem you can see some great footage from the alaska traverse with dave turner and uh, just kind of set it and forget it and then it only depends on us creating content you only pay when something comes out so I encourage you to do that. Congratulations again to Thomas Fay and Chris Balmer for their awesome reviews. And the rest of you, so many great reviews. I'm going to find other ways to reward all of you for doing that. Thank you so much. Another way to support the show, if you don't have the funds to do it, I totally get it. We're going to keep putting these out there. Um, follow me on Instagram. Follow me on Facebook, on my page, not the personal one. Um, and uh, because that's kind of like currency, I can go to my sponsors and uh, and get money in other ways and, and prove to them that we're creating great content for them. So that goes a long way as well. And then all of you that are sharing it on social media, you know, the whole point of this podcast is just making everybody safer and uh, trying to get us all to learn how to fly better and fly farther and and do it in a responsible way where you don't get hurt. And so, you know, share it with your friends, put, you know, send it out there, put it on your timeline, on your feed, uh, tell people about it at launch. Um, That goes a long ways. As another way to uh, thank you all for supporting us, I've got t-shirts and caps that just came in. They're looking pretty awesome, so you can see how you can do that on Patreon. Uh, but also, one of our fans down in New Zealand, actually living in, in Australia right now, but Ben French. Uh, thank you, Ben. He makes these really cool little GoPro mounts for your knees. an acro pilot down there, and he's just gifted us a few. Uh, he sent a few in the mail to, the, to myself and to the Mayhem and just to support you as listeners. So for those of you, if you want one of these, uh, keep doing the ratings thing, uh, share it on Facebook and put a nice little tag on there, say something funny or cool about the show. I promise you I pay attention to those. And uh, if something grabs my eye, then I'll give you one of these awesome little GoPro mounts. We've got more stuff coming up. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being there. I hope you'll follow us uh, all cruising across the Alps here in a little in a little bit of time. That race is starting July 2nd. And we'll see you on the next show. Cheers. Thanks.